Our scripture reading today is from the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, reading from verse 12 through verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all peoples because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of Jesus, the one who was to come. But the free gift of grace is not like the trespass. For if all people, the many, died through the trespass of one man, Adam, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for all. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the trespass of the one man, Adam, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as the trespass of one man, Adam, led to condemnation for all, so the act of righteousness of one man, Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. For just as the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. But law came in, with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin multiplied or increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It is an honor and a pleasure to be back with you again after four years. And I promise you, it was not I who brought the snow from Egypt. But thank you for making your city look so beautiful um, on this morning. We continue with the series on uh, the book of Romans. What a book. Um, but I have to say, I'm glad that my turn came on Romans 5. And I would like to propose a new tradition that we practice together as a church. You're familiar with our church tradition of saying the words, this is the word of the Lord, and we all respond, thanks be to God, after the reading of any scripture passage. This morning, I would like to propose a specific tradition, particularly for Romans 5, where just before we read Romans 5, we ought to say, thank God it's Romans 5, and the rest of us respond, thanks be to God. As you've been studying and reflecting here, um, ending with uh, Dr. Rennick's sermon last week, 
Paul spends the first four chapters of Romans painting a really gloomy picture. It is so dark, you cannot walk away from chapters one through four in the book of Romans without feeling like we're in deep, deep trouble. As Dr. Rennick said last week, Paul belabored the point in describing the depth of human sin and depravity. It is such a hopeless picture. There is no way out. Sin has so twisted our spiritual DNA that it polluted not just the godless, but also the godly. Not only the immoral, but also the upright. Ever since the first Adam, our representative grasped power that was not his. All of humanity, all of us, every single person who walked this earth, all of us have faced this predicament. And there was no stopping this speedy train towards death. But thank God, it's Romans 5. Paul finally makes a turn in this bleak scene, in this, in this gloomy story, and he presents our new representative. He pulls the curtains, or I should say, God pulls the curtain. And Jesus Christ is finally presented as the only solution for this human predicament, our second Adam. The one who offers a way out of this deep depravity and trouble that we're in. The one who comes to liberate us from the reign of sin that yields death unto the reign of grace that leads, eternal, leads to eternal life. And he does this by reversing what the first Adam did. Instead of grasping power that was not his, Jesus Christ, our second Adam, released power that was his. You see, when Adam grasped power that was never his, a power that falsely promised to make him equal to God, the package came with guilt, shame, blaming his only partner, nakedness, brokenness, divisiveness, and into the next generation, jealousies and envy and murder. Because this is the reign of sin, it will always lead to death. His disobedience enslaved him and everyone who came after him to this tyrant of sin, to this tyranny and reign of terror and deceit, a tyrant that promises pleasure but only offers pain, a tyrant that promises power but only offers defeat. And since Adam was our representative, that's exactly where Adam's power grasping left us. A people who are completely powerless. 
the best of our efforts to godliness or holiness or righteousness were considered filthy rags, according to the prophet Isaiah. It's such a paradoxical equation this one is in our lives, and it's one that the gospel speaks of often. When we grasp power, we become powerless. When we release power, that's when we become powerful. When we try to win our lives, we lose them. But when we lay them down, that's when we gain them. Such a paradoxical equation, but this is exactly what the second Adam did. In Jesus Christ, this is what happened. And we can feel for Adam because this power package that he ended up with is the story of our lives. Deceitful promises of power, deceitful promises of pleasure that only offer pain, defeat, powerlessness, grief. And the power that we grasp for today is different than the power that Adam grasped for, but it's the same thing. We added to the initial sin our own sins. Because of our twisted spiritual DNA, we continue to walk in the same path. We grasp power to hold grudges, to get even, to take revenge. We grasp power when we try to control how others think of us, or when we try to control what version they're supposed to become of themselves based on our will. We grab power when we exclude others who are different from us, or when we ignore those who are suffering around us. We grab power when we protect our positions and our titles because those are our forms and sources of security. We grasp power when we play victim and refuse to take responsibility for our own actions. We grasp power when we maximize other people's faults and minimize ours and always give ourselves that exceptional space to the rule, you reap what you saw. We added to the initial offense so much more that our lives are teemed and swarmed with sin. We've been entangled with sin of all shapes and forms. Sin of thought, of words, of deed. Sins against God and sins against our fellow humans. Sins that are private and sins that are public. Sins of ignorance and sins of willfulness. Sins of our childhood, of our youth, of our middle age, of our old age. Sin has so easily entangled us. Sin of doing evil and things of leaving good undone. And when we multiply this by each person who ever walked this earth, it grows to a startling dimension an overwhelming heap 
of sins. All our vows, all our resolutions are deemed powerless. But thank God for Romans 5. Because in verse 6, Paul says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What? What? Why? That's the reaction that Paul anticipated while writing the letter, and that's the reaction we should all have. Why? So Paul goes on, verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. That's what you're thinking, Romans, right? But let me tell you something, Paul says in verse 8, but God. But God has a very different equation about life than we do. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, powerless, Christ died for us. Christ, our new representative, Christ, the second Adam, made a way from groaning into grace. Romans is a journey from groaning to grace, and the turning point happens when the curtains are revealed, are opened, and Christ is revealed in Romans 5. He did that by reversing what Adam did. He released power that was his. Philippians 2, Paul writes a hymn he says, for while being in very nature God, Christ Jesus did not consider equality with God something, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing. Being made in human likeness, being made powerless, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. But just so we're all clear here, even though that verse ends with death, let's consider the huge difference between the death of the first Adam and the death of the second Adam. Adam's was a death from which there was no resurrection. It's a very bleak story. However, this is what his disobedience led to. It's a death from which there is no resurrection. But in the second Adam, Christ's death on a cross, willingly, voluntarily, out of his own love, it's a death that was defeated by the resurrection because it was the fruit of obedience. And just like that, we rise in the same way that we fell. For just as we fell in the first Adam, through no sin of our own, we rise in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through no merit of our own. 
Christ's package comes with power intended for us, but not a power that we grasp. Rather, it's a power that came to us as a free gift from above. Jesus said those words to his disciples, you just wait here until my spirit, the power from above, comes upon you, and you will do greater things than I ever did. A power that is not grasped, but a power that is gifted through the Holy Spirit. A power that comes with a different package, not the guilt and shame and nakedness and brokenness and divisiveness and jealousy and murder, but it is a package that comes with peace and love and joy and goodness and kindness and patience, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. This is the power we are meant to have. A power that we're powerless to grasp, and yet empowered to receive. And yet, Paul wants all attention drawn to the second Adam. He brings up the first Adam just for reference because all of his Jewish, Jewish readers knew that story. But he wants us not to be distracted by whatever happened with the first Adam. He wants us to fully focus on the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say that all of this happened only through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, could only happen through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So 10 times he uses the phrase, through Jesus Christ, from the very opening of the chapter, first one, to the very closing in verse 21. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, through Jesus we have peace with God. Verse 2, through him we gained access into grace. Through him we boast in hope of the glory. Through him we glory in our suffering. Verse 9, through him we are saved from God's wrath. Verse 10, through his death we are reconciled to God. Through his life we are saved. Verse 11, through him we boast in God. Through him we receive reconciliation. Verse 17, through him we have abundant provision of grace, the gift of righteousness, the reign of life. Verse 19, through him, many will be righteous. Verse 21, finally, through him, grace reigned to bring eternal life. Eternal life through Jesus Christ meant justice for the oppressed, but also justification for the oppressor. And depending on where we see our need for grace, some of us have trouble with the second half of the sentence. Justice for the oppressed, we're all for that. But justification for the oppressor? The second half of that phrase is only good news if we consider ourselves the oppressor. But in God's great mercy, 
He offers justice for the oppressed, the victims, and justification that we can't understand for the perpetrators, among whom we are the worst. And yet, Paul goes on to say, look, just because I'm drawing a parallel between first Adam and second Adam, please do not put them in the same contrast table. They do not belong on the same page. Christ is so much more. And Christ's justification is so much more than whatever came out of Adam's one sin. And so four times in this chapter, he uses the phrase, much more, much, much more. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Next verse, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Finally, verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. The gift of God in Jesus Christ cannot be compared with the result of one man's sin. We are justified in the present, and we have no fear of future condemnation. A couple of chapters from now, Paul will come out with the conclusion. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who then is he to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. If our sins were like a heap of filth, Christ's grace is like an Everest of grace. You cannot compare. If Adam's sin was a one sin that filled a sticky note, well, it cannot be compared to endless scrolls of God's demonstrations of love for us ever since that first sin. If one sin has slain us, Christ has slain our heap of sins. The gift of God cannot be compared with the result of one man's sins. But let's be clear on this. The journey from groaning to grace is one that cost Christ his life. It came through suffering. And if we're called to be imitators of Christ, then our journey from grace to glory 
will also cost us our lives. We'll also be one of suffering. And yet, because it's a suffering that comes out of obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit and not a suffering that comes out of disobedience because we're grasping power that's not ours, it will actually be a suffering that yields joy in our lives. It will be a suffering in which we can rejoice. And that's why Paul states it very clearly to us. Knowing that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope, the kind of hope that doesn't disappoint. The kind of hope that doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us a gift from above. The Holy Spirit gives us this power to be imitators of Christ through our suffering and as a result from our suffering. Without suffering, saints who were once sinners would easily return to sin. Suffering is God's way of forming us into the likeness of the second Adam, who released his power, who laid down his life in order to save many. And that power by the Holy Spirit is present and available to every believer and to entire communities of believers waiting to preach good news for a world that's longing to move from groaning to grace and into glory. Thanks be to God. For the second Adam, our representative, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have left on earth copies of you, models and examples of faith and of sacrificial love that have released power and in so doing have become so powerful in impacting our world. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is there to empower us to live under the reign of grace. God, we pray. We pray that you would loosen our grip on power packages that were never intended for us. That you would heal us from pain and pleasures and defeat and lead us into a life that goes on and on and on, a world without end, justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, our representative, who raised us with him to the newness of life. To you be glory forever and ever. In Christ Jesus. Amen.